You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking details of that bombshell development in the BC legislature today. Two well-respected senior staff, the Sergeant at Arms and the Clerk of the House, put on administrative leave and escorted out of the building. Keith Baldry has more on what we are learning about why it happened and the reaction. Government House Leader. It came out of the blue. Government House Leader Mike Farnworth looking shaken as he dropped an unprecedented bombshell. I move that Mr. Craig James, Clerk of the Legislative Assembly, and Mr. Gary Lenz, Sergeant at Arms, are placed on administrative leave with pay and benefits effective immediately. With word that the two highest-ranking legislature officers were about to be escorted out of the building, the Speaker's corridor suddenly became the scene of near chaos, both reporters and politicians looking for answers. I can tell you that the Speaker's office um, will be putting out a statement later and additional questions should be addressed to uh, the uh, Attorney General. And that's, that's all I can say at this moment. Thank you. Suddenly, Chief Clerk Craig James appeared, looking and sounding shocked at the stunning developments. In your knowledge, what would be something that would constitute grounds? I have no idea. I mean, I, I have no idea, and, and uh, I think the Sergeant at Arms is equally shocked. It's completely baffling to everyone in the building. Yeah, or did yeah. I think we have a right to know what it is. James left the building via the back entrance, escorted by a Victoria police officer seen here on the left and a political aide to the speaker on the right. And that aide later emerged to say a criminal investigation was taking place. I can confirm that there has been a special prosecutor assigned. I can confirm that there is an active and ongoing criminal investigation by the RCMP. As for the Premier, he says he hopes the matter is resolved quickly. The first I heard about it was yesterday. It was uh, shocking, to be sure. Uh, I, I am uh, certainly very concerned that uh, whatever investigation is underway is completed as quickly as possible for the individuals involved, but also for our institutions. And Keith Baldry joins us with more on this story. This obviously sent shockwaves through the legislature, uh, Keith. Unprecedented. And two special prosecutors have been appointed. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever happened before. What can we read into that? Yeah, that is a very unusual. I actually don't think it has happened before for to have two special prosecutors on a single criminal investigation. But the news releases industry uh, is interesting, does provide some clues from the prosecution service. It says it's appointed the two special prosecutors given the potential for the size and scope of the investigation. That tells me this is going to be a very complex investigation. It's not a one-off event. It may uh, cover a period of time. And I don't think it's going to wrap up that quickly, despite what you heard the premier say there, which is unfortunate for Mr. Lenz and Mr. James, as the Premier mentioned as well, these are two very well-liked and highly respected people who've been on the scene at the B.C. Legislature for a number of years. And as I can say, it was absolute shock and drama unfolding this morning. Nobody had a clue this was about to happen. A couple of us got a tip that something was going to happen. Nobody saw this coming, though. I can tell you that. It is historical. It's unprecedented. And who knows where it's going to go next. All right. We'll see what happens down the road. Keith, thank you. All right. IHID confirms the man found dead under the Golden Ears Bridge on Sunday was a full-patch member of the Hells Angels. 43-year-old Chad Wilson of Maple Ridge was no stranger to police in Canada and abroad. Grace Key has more on Wilson's past and what IHID is doing to prevent a further outbreak of violence. Police are now confirming 43-year-old Chad Wilson, a Hells Angel gang member, was found dead Sunday morning just underneath the Golden Ears Bridge in Maple Ridge. He was a well-established member of an organized crime group. 
and we believe that his murder was not a random act. New details are emerging about Wilson's criminal history that spans the U.S. and Europe. This dramatic takedown in 2013 shows Spanish police swooping in at a cafe to arrest four Canadian members of the Hells Angels. That included Wilson. They were accused of smuggling 500 kilograms of cocaine from Colombia to Spain on a boat. Wilson was also one of two men acquitted of first-degree murder after a 2006 gun battle against another rival gang in South Dakota. The two had claimed self-defense. He was later indicted for weapons-related charges. It was reported that he was a member of the California Hells Angels. The last time a member of the Hells Angels was killed, it triggered violent repercussions. Bob Green was murdered back in October 2016 in Langley. Days later, a gruesome discovery. The dismembered body of 27-year-old Sean Allen Clary was found along a rural road in Langley. There is fear this latest murder could lead to retribution and more violence throughout the region. I hit will be engaging with our numerous partners uh, from the gang uh, enforcement units throughout the lower mainland region. Uh, they will be working uh, to mitigate any ongoing violence. Police are not commenting on the cause of death or if Wilson was killed underneath the bridge or at another location. A motive for his death remains unclear. Grace Key, Global News. Police have announced an arrest in connection with an assault in Vancouver's West End over the weekend. It happened near Butte and Pendrell Streets just before 3 Saturday morning. A woman told police a stranger followed her into an apartment building and then attacked her. Investigators believe the incident was sexually motivated. VPD announcing today, thanks to crucial tips from the public, a 34-year-old Vancouver man has been arrested and will remain in custody while the investigation continues. No names have been released. Now to a disturbing case of what appears to be road rage on Vancouver Island. And we want to warn you right away, the details of this case are unsettling to say the least. Video shows a cyclist and a driver getting into a heated dispute in Victoria. The recording shows the cyclist defecating and then throwing it at the car. The person who shot the video believes the driver may have knocked the cyclist off his bike. I saw what was going on outside. I knew it was crazy. Um, I, I, I kind of, I thought, okay, I see a lot of stuff at that intersection. Uh, but then he whipped his pants down. And as soon as I saw his bum come out, I thought, oh boy, here it comes. Like... I like I knew what was coming and so uh, luckily he was behind the car so I didn't see him do the business but I whipped the phone out just in time to see him stand up and I mean the guy was he was mad like I said like it was like full-on chimpanzee anger like he only had one resort and that was to basically do it in his hand and fling it at a car. It happened at the intersection of Cook and Yates Street. Police are investigating and say incidents like this are very serious and considered unacceptable in the community. More details today on BC's long-term plan for clean energy vehicles. The province wants to dramatically increase the adoption of zero-emission vehicles and is offering incentives for you to buy them. It wants 100% of cars sold to be zero-emission by 2040. Catherine Urquhart has more on the ambitious undertaking and why critics believe it's a very lofty goal. Zero-emission cars are becoming more popular with British Columbians. Still, they make up only 1.5% of vehicles on the roads. 
The B.C. government aiming to change that, announcing it wants all new light-duty cars and trucks sold here to use zero-emission technology by 2040. 10% of the vehicles sold by 2025 will be ZEVs, 30% by 2030, and a fully 100% by 2040. The province has increased its clean energy vehicles program by $20 million, meaning anyone who buys a battery-powered or hybrid vehicle is eligible for incentives of up to $5,000, $6,000 for hydrogen-fueled vehicles. Well, yeah, I'd absolutely consider getting an electric car. Um, and frankly, it's on my, my list for when my existing car eventually dies. About 12,000 clean energy vehicles are registered in B.C., and more of us would like to buy one. But a recent report by Clean Energy Canada found the majority of B.C.'s dealerships that qualify for the electric vehicle rebate program don't have any available. We are only one jurisdiction of many, and all sorts of jurisdictions are making this demand. And the auto dealers are, and auto producers aren't in a position to meet this requirement. Also announced, the number of direct current fast chargers is more than doubling, from 71 to 151. Mm, they might need to look at maybe quadrupling it. I mean, I'm thinking like uh, ahead, to try to plot ahead. The B.C. government says it hopes to make the zero emission targets official this spring, when it introduces legislation. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Action to BC's much-anticipated ride-sharing plan continues to pour in, and a lot of it isn't positive. The legislation introduced yesterday prevents BC from entering the popular market until at least the fall of 2019. And as Ted Chernecki reports, for many, the time is now. To hear from those who've been lobbying for ride-sharing for seven years now, it's the same old story. Hurry up and wait. When they land at our destinations, they can wait most times um, longer than the flight for a taxi cab to pick them up. Members of the Ride Sharing Now Coalition are standing together against BC's latest proposal for what they see as a highly regulated new service. Unnecessary, they say. Just get on with it already because every day there are examples of how the current taxi system fails. I spent four hours after surgery trying to get home by taxi. And there are no consequences. They said they watched excitedly as the provincial government finally announced a plan, only to find out it wants to cap how many ride-sharing cars are on the road depending on time and location. Lyft um, and other ride-sharing companies and true ride-sharing would not be able to operate with those caps in place. The ride-hailing company Lyft launched in Toronto last year, joining most major North American cities. But BC argues that for rider safety, it wants a made-in-BC program. This has been around for six or seven years. And I feel like every time either a new government or a government that wants to get in is going to talk about something like this, they talk about it like it's a brand new idea. Like the Liberals before them, the NDP campaigned on the promise of ride-sharing sooner rather than later. Now, with a possible launch a year or even two away, the coalition is openly asking if this has got to do more with politics than policy. The Premier is a, such a practical guy. You know, it's interesting, we're not hearing that decisiveness. Absolutely is influenced by the tax industry, for sure. They're, they're, they're great lobbyists. They're great lobbyists. Ted Chernacki, Global News. 
Vancouver's new mayor, Kennedy Stewart, held his first open media briefing today. The plan is to hold such an availability twice a month. Our Tanya Beja has more on the purpose of this and why the mayor feels it's an important step. Mayor Stewart says he is committed to transparency and explaining city decisions to the public. So as part of that, he is holding regular press briefings now roughly every two weeks. The mayor hosted the first of those today. In it, he explained uh, some of the work council and staff have been doing since the inauguration. Uh, they've been costing out the new SkyTrain line to UBC. Mayor Stewart has met with the UBC president and the Musqueam First Nation to work together on that project. He also talked about how he plans to introduce a motion to create a lobbyist registry and new conflict of interest rules here at City Hall. I think it would give the citizens, you know, uh, more confidence and, and it would be more transparent. So that's, uh, that's the intention. Mayor Stewart says he's now consulting with council and the province on his motion and plans to introduce it very soon. Chris and Sophie, back to you. Tanya Beige at Vancouver City Hall. Tanya, thank you. And now we have an update on that rogue river otter causing chaos at a popular Vancouver garden. The otter has been captured on camera munching on koi in the Dr. Sun Yat-sen classical Chinese garden pond. Some of the fish are decades old and very costly to replace. Now reinforcements are being brought in. Vancouver Park Board has set a trap to try and catch and relocate the furry bandit. In Sun Yat-sen, absolutely not. It's such a unique facility in the middle of the city, particularly here. I mean, we've got busy streets. Uh, how it got here and survived, I don't know. Um, but so, yeah, it's a one-off. Let's hope so. The otter is already being blamed for eating as many as six larger koi, but it appears it has left the garden's prized oldest inhabitant, Madonna, alone. The park board is hoping the otter will fall for the chicken lace trap tonight and it will be relocated to a more suitable pond in Stanley Park very soon. Right now, though, in a Global News exclusive, our Ramina Dea traveled to Peru, where a B.C. woman was last seen alive two years ago. Her Peruvian partner is now accused of killing her. The future of their two children remains in limbo and stuck in the middle of this turmoil are the parents of the missing woman. In part one of our series, we reveal stunning new details in the case as we follow her parents to Peru on their journey for justice. I don't know where she is. Do you think you'll see her again? Oh, no. No. When I say she's here, it's a spiritual sense. Al and Kathy Kasatkin have not heard from their daughter in two years. They have journeyed from Abbotsford to Lima with two intentions, bring their grandchildren home and get justice for Kimberly. We just want Kim to have her day in court. We want, Christopher should be having his day in court. It's the only way to, to get to the truth. Kimberly Kazatkin followed her heart from British Columbia to Lima, Peru. Kimberly and Christopher Franz Bataki, a Peruvian citizen, met on Vancouver Island while studying acupuncture. After spending time in Africa, the couple settled in Miraflores, a wealthy district of Lima, about five years ago. They had two children, now five and eight. Hit my face. Here's my knee. He grabbed the back of my hair 
Handfuls of hair, look. The relationship volatile. Shocking allegations of abuse surfaced on Peruvian television this year. She told me that they, they fought a lot. She was very unhappy. Rachel Foyes, one of Kimberly's best friends, lived below the couple. She's speaking out for the first time. She never would have left those kids. Never. There's no way. She stayed there for them. She wanted to get out. She did try and go to the Canadian Embassy for advice of what she could do because she felt so incredibly helpless. The Canadian Embassy in Lima refusing to answer specific questions, citing privacy. I imagine what she must have been going through the last few minutes of her life. And... Um, I, I just am having a hard time holding it together right now. Well, for us, it's not disappear. For us, she is being murdered. Kimberly's lawyer confirms chilling details in the case. November 26, 2016, surveillance footage shows Kimberly entering her building but never coming out. The day after, Bataki is captured on camera moving a heavy suitcase he could barely lift. Kimberly's body suspected to be inside. Bataki denies it, claiming it's camping gear. Fast forward to January 2017. DNA analysis by Peruvian police reveals Kimberly's blood on a column in the same parking garage. Extortionists demanded $5,000 for a piece of Kimberly's body, claiming she was buried in Chilca, a city 90 minutes outside Lima. Bataki has land there. Police searched, but Kimberly's body has never been found. Bataki is facing a charge of femicide, the killing of a woman under Peruvian law. After two judges denied his release, a third judge in another jurisdiction released him in June, citing insufficient grounds for detention. The prosecutor is seeking a 17-year sentence. In the North American system, nobody no crime. But in our system, it's not. Because if we have enough evidence, we can't use that evidence to sentence him for feminicide. The accused tells Global News he's in Peru. Bataki won't respond to our emails. The High Court in Lima issued an arrest warrant more than two months ago. You're telling me that this trial is going ahead? Yes. Regardless if, if he is found? Yes. Kimberly's mother has given up. She has zero confidence the trial will begin by year's end. Please hang in there, okay? You're, you've been my strength. If, I, if we both give up at the same time, you know, it's lost, right? I know. I know. You'll so, come uh, back. you'll come back. You will. It's, it's just taking so long. You just, um, it's just not fair. Only one focus now for Al and Kathy, custody of their grandchildren. She may be gone, but uh, that's, not, that's not just all of her. I mean, she's got her legacy here. She's got children, so I've, I've got a lot of hope. Romina Dea, Global News, Lima, Peru. And Romina and our crew will have more from Peru tomorrow, including uh, the status of Kimberly Kasatkin's children. That is tomorrow on the News Hour. A number of West African students are upset with the owner of a now-closed college in Surrey. After paying thousands of dollars in fees in the hopes of studying here in Canada, they say they were left empty-handed. Now, many of them claim their money was never returned when Fraser Valley Community College was shut down by regulators in 2015. 
The owner of the school has denied any wrongdoing, but as a months-long investigation from Global News journalist Brian Hill and reporter Nadia Stewart reveals, some of the students who paid money say they were misled, and they're now demanding the Canadian government take action. For David Dada Carter, it was a long-held dream. I was really desiring to study abroad after I graduated from high school. One she thought would finally come true in 2014. This lady, Sonada Kikla, was in Liberia at the TGH apartment. And she wanted to see all those who applied for the scholarship. The lady Carter says she met is Sinanda Kikla, a BC woman who owns the now-closed Fraser Valley Community College. This is all that's left of the Surrey School. It was shut down by BC's Ministry of Advanced Education in 2015. But when Kikla bought it in 2012, the ministry says there was just one student enrolled. So for the next two years, Kikla embarked on international student recruitment campaigns, traveling to Gambia, Ghana, Cameroon, Sierra Leone and Liberia, which is where Carter says she met Kikla, something Kikla denies. She asked us to pay the amount of $300 US for the scholarship that the rest of the funding was going to be from the Canadian government. Cash, the $1,000, most of the students, they paid cash when we were there. So he left from Ghana, go to Morovia. It was a similar story for Fon Connie Collins in Douala, Cameroon. He says he met Kikla in his hometown in 2014 and agreed to work as the recruitment agent for her. Collins claims to know 280 students. He says paid Kikla $1,000 each in exchange for admission to FVCC. Meanwhile, Kikla accuses Collins of conspiring against FVCC and says his allegations are false. Kikla also claims she told students their payments were non-refundable. In the end, most of the students received nothing in exchange for the money they paid. No scholarships, no real education in Canada. She's bad. Actually, she's bad because you can't come into a suffering country like Liberia and then try to exploit people. Since March, Global News has questioned former students and applicants as well as a recruiter in West Africa and regulators here in B.C. The Ministry of Advanced Education says students paid over half a million dollars, believing they would one day receive an education in Canada. Numerous student complaints, which Kikla claims were either false or fabricated, coupled with failed audits and 12 warnings from provincial regulators, eventually led to the school having its license suspended. Kikla insists BC's private career training institutions agency acted unlawfully when it ruled against her, adding they convinced students to submit false claims against her and the school. At least two students defend Kikla, saying she did nothing wrong. In the end, the Ministry of Advanced Education says 68 students received tuition refunds totaling $492,000 when FVCC closed. But that money was paid out of a student insurance fund set up by the province, not Kikla. And according to the ministry, most, if not all of these students, paid $1,000 in application fees, which were never refunded. And they're not eligible to receive those refunds either. It's also impossible to say just how much money Kikla made while operating the school. Since the school's closure, it appears Kikla and her husband, Natai Chan Gaswami, have relocated to the small town of Greenwood, B.C., where documents show they purchased multiple properties. Global News tried on several occasions to contact Kikla for an interview, but our requests were met with denials and accusations against us and the individuals we spoke with. But Carter is still hopeful something, if anything, can be done for her and others like her. 
I want the Canadian government to properly investigate and then so that either she refund the money or she can go to prison. Nadia Stark, Global News. A burning mystery unfolding at a mansion in New Jersey. The home erupted in flames this afternoon and shortly after that, Two adults and two children were found dead at the property. One man was found shot outside, while three other bodies were discovered inside, all severely burned. And investigators are still trying to determine if the fire was intentionally set. Well, the U.S. president's daughter is under fire tonight, facing accusations of using her own personal email for government business. Ivanka is denying any classified information was shared, but for many, the accusations against the first daughter sound very familiar. Tonight, the first dad defending his daughter, now under investigation for violating federal records rules by using her personal email account to conduct government business last year. Ivanka did some emails. Uh, They weren't classified like Hillary Clinton. They weren't deleted like Hillary Clinton. They're all in presidential records. There was no hiding. Ivanka Trump today also not hiding front and center in the Rose Garden, but publicly silent. A spokesperson for Mrs. Trump telling NBC News she sometimes used her private account almost always for logistics and scheduling concerning her family. Still, House Democrats are demanding answers, vowing they'll investigate those emails, reportedly hundreds of them, that Ms. Trump sent to White House aides, cabinet officials, and her assistants. Oh, Ivanka can handle herself. Ivanka can handle herself. But even a pair of the president's former aides concede it's problematic. Well, certainly, I think it's hypocritical. I think even Ivanka, if she was, you know, interviewed about it, she'd have to say that it was a mistake. Look, it, it, it appears hypocritical and it, uh, it looks bad, for sure. Especially given candidate Trump's relentless assault on his former opponent. How can Hillary manage this country? when she can't even manage her emails. The argument that launched that famous rallying cry. Tonight, giving critics new ammunition. Peter Alexander, NBC News, the White House. Devastation in southern Italy today after a tornado barreled through. erupted as the twister crossed by Torresano. Local media reporting several trees, walls, and even houses were knocked down by the tornado as Italy was hit by the wild weather. Another tornado rolled through a town in the Calabria region, and there was also a water spout in Salerno. A U.S. Chipotle manager who was fired after video surfaced showing her denying service to a group of African-American men has her job back tonight. The restaurant rehired her after a deeper investigation shed new light on the viral video. Bro, what's up? Can we get served? She was made to be the villain in the viral video. What we gotta do? Hey, because you never have money when you come in here. A manager at Chipotle quickly fired after she asked a group of men in St. Paul to prove they could pay for their meals before taking their order. Y'all basically stereotyping us, yeah. But it was Chipotle who had to later apologize to the manager, offering her her job back after a rush to judgment over a video many feared would spark a wave of social media outrage. Unfortunately, this might be a case where the beast has just gotten too big and has sort of run away from them, and that's the world we're living in now. 
As the video began amassing millions of views, Chipotle discovered the 21-year-old who tweeted the video has alluded to not paying for food before, even writing Chipotle catching up to us. The manager who knew the group from a previous encounter was just trying to do the right thing. She's doing this making crazy In a world of viral videos, sometimes the first response may be the wrong one. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. In Health Matters Tonight, a medical procedure you have to see to believe. There we go. That's 19-year-old Kira Lankanetti singing her way through brain surgery. The avid performer was diagnosed with music-triggered epilepsy after she noticed things went blank when she sang or listened to music. An MRI at Seattle's Children's Hospital revealed a mass in the right temporal lobe and in an effort to do as little as damage to remove it to the healthy parts of the Kira's brain, doctors kept her awake and asked her to sing throughout the procedure. Just 48 hours after the tumor was successfully removed, Kira was back playing her guitar. Good for her. Old Santa is looking forward to this. This is going to be a wonderful, action-packed day. Yeah, that's right. This year's TELUS Vancouver Santa Claus Parade is coming up very quickly. You can catch it December 2nd, starting at Georgia and Broughton in downtown Vancouver. Today, Santa and his elves were hanging the last of the 300 banners that will line the parade route. He has to put the banners up on his own parade route? I, okay. Seems... Well, the elves do, I guess. I feel like he's busy, but anyway, he's coming. And now entering its 15th year, the parade will feature more than 50 marching bands, choirs, festive floats, and the broadcast will be hosted by our very own Sonia Sunger and Paul Haysom. I'm confused, like Christy is. Why isn't he at the North Pole making toys? He's got people for that. For all of you children watching right now. And we're getting a sneak peek at the Vancouver Christmas market just to keep you in the spirit here, just ahead of its official opening tomorrow. Billed as the city's signature Yuletide celebration, the market at the Olympic Cauldron at Jackpool Plaza offers German treats and gifts from vendors. This year's event features a nine-meter-long tunnel with twinkling lights and mistletoe and the market runs until December 24th. There's also a carousel, obviously. It'll be fun down there. Well, she is only a few months old, but already this little kitten has used up one of her nine lives. Wait till you see her now, right after Christie's forecast. Well, we've had a few cold and frosty mornings uh, mm -hmm. to get you into the Christmas spirit. Maybe it's starting. American Thanksgiving is coming up, and that's kind of... The start to the holiday season, isn't it? Yeah, and the feel of the chill in the air, that's for sure. Chris, uh, we weren't expecting frost this morning. Temperatures dropped a little bit more uh, than expected, but we are going to see more cloud cover tonight, not as much of a drop. Before I move on, and yes, we are expecting rain tomorrow. Mother Nature easing us into it with a bit of cloud cover today. A very rare halo display was captured on cam camera this past Saturday, opening day at Sun Peaks. Thanks to Karen for this. This is so rare because it's actually multiple halos and arcs spotted all at once. And the reason why this is, uh, isn't seen very often is you can have, actually have to have multiple different shapes of crystals. It's actually sun reflecting off the ice crystals in the air, and they have to be 
in a certain uh, sh uh, pattern. So incredible uh, shot, Karen. Thanks for that one and for sharing it with us. Uh, it is very rare to see that. Now, so Sun Peaks open on Saturday. We've got multiple mountains opening on Thursday. Whistler, Blackcomb, uh, Big White and Silver Star and all will have fresh snow over the next two days. So get out there and hit the slopes. Time to wax the skis and it means rainfall lowered down. Now, temperature-wise, we will warm up to slightly above seasonal temperatures, but the rain's certainly moving back in. Tonight, just cooling off to about 4 degrees. How much rain? Anywhere from 15 to 30 millimeters for the lower mainland, west part of Vancouver Island, and the mountain range getting hit hardest. And again, higher elevations, certainly expecting snowfall. So this is your Wednesday morning, everyone. It shifts further inland by the evening hours. And on Thursday, we have another wave that sets to push that is set to push on shore. So best chance of rainfall will be throughout the day on Wednesday. Yes, a high chance throughout the day on Wednesday. Thursday, I think it'll be likely drier through the early part of the day and then the rainfall begins to pick up later on. Those of you across the North Coast, similar conditions with the rainfall. Further inland, you will see increasing cloud, the rain and snow pushing in towards the end of the day tomorrow. And there's your rain and wind along the east coast of Vancouver Island gusts up to 60 kilometers an hour and it's going to be wet right through the next couple of days. I'll leave you, Chris, with a frosty and Sophie, but Chris, because you had mentioned the frostiness yeah. in Pitt Meadows there. Thanks to Terry for that one. Very cool. A little low-lying fog as well. Uh, yes. What else we got? A kitten? A kitten uh, who had a little bit of an issue. Uh, now back to how curiosity nearly killed the kitten. That's right. The Florida SPCA says Rue snuck under a door to eat bait off a fish hook and ended up with the hook, as you can see, stuck in her mouth. Amazingly, veterinarians were able to pull the hook out with no major damage, and Rue is back to being a playful, curious little kitten. Not only did it go through her mouth, the end of the hook was right behind her eyeball, so when they touched the hook, her eyeball would move. Just the other night, you mentioned the Winnipeg Jets as possible Stanley Cup contenders. Well, I'm not the only one saying that, but they have certainly put the win back in Winnipeg. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had a chance last year, and then they ran into Vegas, but um, they have a good chance this year as well. And there are a few ways to look at last night's 6-3 loss by the Canucks to the Jets. Vancouver did come back from a 4-1 deficit, got it to 4-3 before falling behind again. But their opening period saw them completely overwhelmed by Winnipeg. And if you're a Jets fan, if you feel this might be the year, you'll appreciate the props the Canucks gave them last night. For one, Elias Pettersson thinks the Jets are the best team Vancouver has played this season. To Jake for 10 and around to the other side. Pettersson is there. Ran into his own teammate, cucked his center line and scores! Every team is good and show and every team can win against each other, but like the way they played and handled the puck, I think that Winnipeg so far has been the best team I met. Canucks are in Anaheim tomorrow. Goaltender Thatcher Demko, he's now recovered from his concussion. He's off to Utica. He hasn't played since getting hurt in the preseason. Him being hurt is why Richard Bachman has been Jacob Markstrom's backup while Anders Nilsson has been out with an injury. Well, in an effort to likely save his own job, Edmonton Oilers GM Peter Shirelli fired head coach Tom McClellan today and replaced him with Ken Hitchcock. I always get the sense that Hitchcock is the threat to underachieving hockey teams. You guys better smarten up, or we're going to bring in Uncle Hitch if you don't. 
The Oilers did bring in Uncle Hitch. He's back after a very short self-imposed retirement. He's a good coach. He's tough, but he's good. I told the players today I can take them to a place uh, personally that they can't get to themselves, but they got to buy into that, and it's not going to be comfortable at times. But if we want to expect, if we expect to win hockey games, we're not going to do it on talent. We're, we're going to really have to develop an atmosphere where we're 100% locked in playing for each other and not with each other. That almost sounded like a line from a bar. I can take you to places you can't get there by yourself. <laughs> uh, the Blues fired head coach, Mike Yo, he's out. Craig Berube is in. Former lineman of Cliff Ronnie's back in the new Westminster Bruins days. You know what? Four coaches have now been fired in the NHL so far this season. All right. Last year, New Westminster beat Terry Fox to win the Subway Bowl for AAA High School football. It was a last-second win. It was a controversial last-second win, and they'll meet again this Saturday in the semis. There it is. There's the snap. Balls up. Phillip drops back, lobs into it the, the end, end zone. zone, and it's, it's caught. caught. It's caught. Hayek's touchdown. <laughs> it was literally a last-second Hail Mary touchdown catch that shattered the hearts of the Terry Fox Ravens. Or was it? What they say was a touchdown. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> still shake your head over it? Oh, yeah. I still look back to it because there's videos that come up, and I just think, wow, just not good. We thought he dropped it, but they thought he caught it and ended up having him catch it, so that sort of stung for us, and I think it's sort of like drive us to actually win this game and go harder than we've ever gone before. We have an actual still shot that shows the ball on the ground. So that makes it even worse for us to, uh, to, to swallow in that. And this is why 12 months after losing the Subway Bowl, the Ravens still feel they got job. Not so, though, according to the defending champs, who paint a different picture. I did see that one, but I also saw the front angle, which they probably haven't seen yet, and it was a catch. So, you know, like, I'm not sure if everybody understands the rules, but as long as the ball is being completely possessed, it's allowed to touch the ground as long as it's being possessed. So for us, I'm not going to give a lot of oxygen to that storyline. I get why they would. So on one side of the line of scrimmage, you have a defending champion ready to repeat. On the other side, a team with a massive chip on its shoulder who can't wait to strap on the pads and get at it. Everything kind of excites me for this one, especially because they took, I'd say, the, kind of the championship away from us. I think it would mean so much to us, especially like, to the school as well and to the fans, because like three years in a row, I'm not sure how many times that's been done before. Especially for us, it just means like, the world through us, basically. I think it's going to be a total dogfight between both teams, and it's going to take the full, full game to play. All I've been hearing is it might be a little bit of a revenge thing, but more for me, this is just a win another game, win another semifinal, and take my team to the finals. The National Lacrosse season is still in limbo because of a labor dispute between the players and the league. They've already canceled a couple of weeks of the regular season. There's a possibility they could announce a couple of more weeks being canceled. The way things stand now, the Warriors season would start December 15th in Calgary with their first home game at Rogers on December 21st. Well, did you watch this last night? Oh, we're not going to. Oh, we're doing it. Oh, oh. darn. I'm sitting. I'm sitting here with my. I was just going to say that game last night between the Rams and uh, oh, the Chiefs. Yeah. The over/under was oh, what was it, 63 and a half or 64 and a half? Whatever the case, they scored 101 points. Vegas lost a lot of money last. Bet night. they did. A lot of money. What a barn burner! Thanks, Squire. Here's a look at your snow report for Tuesday, November 20th. Whistler Blackcomb opening November 22nd. Sasquatch December 13th. Revelstoke opening December 1st. Fernie November 30th. Manning Park November 24th. Whitewater December 7th. 
Big White and Silver Star both opening November 22nd. Sun Peaks open with a base of 68 centimeters. Kicking Horse and Mount Washington open December 7th. Powder King November 23rd. Oh, we've missed that music. Oh, the familiar music of the <laughs> Snow Report is back once again this year. Awesome. Okay, well, he's one of YouTube's biggest stars, raked in $11 million last year with his own line of toys selling out in Walmart and Target. And he's only seven years old. Meet the kid millionaire behind the Ryan's World Toy Empire. What's YouTube star Ryan is only seven years old but he's already selling out aisles of toys at Walmart and Target like a retail veteran. What's it like to see yourself right there? It's so cool because I can see myself. His eggs and squishies are some of the hottest toys this holiday season. It all started with YouTube videos he made with his parents at age three. See you next time. They've now been viewed more than 25 billion times, transforming the boy wonder into the eighth highest paid YouTube star. He made an estimated $11 million last year. And retailers have now turned to influencers like Ryan to get families into their stores. Why do you think all these kids out there like watching your videos? Because I'm entertaining and I'm funny. But like many first graders, he's just a kid too, losing his first tooth and avoiding his veggies. He is a picky eater, and he's also very sociable at school. And toys are just the beginning. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a game developer. With no plans to stop playing anytime soon. Jolene Kent, NBC News, Burbank. He stole your move. There was some crazy dance going on there that I'm certain is related to Fortnite somehow, but I don't oh, know how. Right. Yeah, probably. <laughs> dancing in Fortnite? Yeah, yeah there is. There is. Orange Justice, is. The Floss. Oh, is that where oh, the, the Floss, floss. is that's, that's, that's where yeah, the Floss the, came the, One of the moves in Fortnite is The Floss. I finally I didn't figured out that. how to do it. Okay. Yeah. okay, but I won't show you. What, The Floss or Fortnite? The Floss. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very difficult you gotta do it. for Den- adults Four out of five, dentists recommend it. Okay, anyway. Last word. Uh, Okay, so um, still dry overnight, but the rain will develop by the time you're waking up. You'll see that, and it'll continue through much of the day tomorrow and Thursday. All right, thanks, Christy. Thank you for watching. (laughs) Who was the fifth dentist, and why didn't you? I think it was the three out of four. I don't know why.